Hey, everybody. It is episode 86 of the Running Rogue podcast. Chris and Steve are coming at you from Austin, Texas. Hey, Steve. Hello, Chris, and hello, podcast world. It seems like it's been forever since I had a actually on online talking to you guys. Feels like forever. <laughs> so today's topic, this has actually been requested a few times by listeners in different forms, but we're going to be talking about a training topic today with just Steve and I basically going through by race distance from 18 sorry from 800 meters up to the marathon and talking about both the similarities in training for those distances across that spectrum and also by race what are the differences including differences in how you approach each type of training block for each race and also how you might think about prep race differences across each race and how you might think about mental prep differently across each race. And so we'll be breaking that down for 800 meters up to the full marathon. And this episode as a result might end up being broken into a couple different parts, depending on how long it takes as we riff on these events. As always, we've got some intro topics for you. The first is a reminder simply that if you're listening to this on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, as we release this, and we're going to remind you that we're recording with Dina, Dina Castor on August 8th for her episode on her book, Let Your Mind Run, our next Endorphin book, book, book Club episode. So if you have questions for Dina, get those into us by Tuesday, August 7th, so that we can ask her those listener questions. I've already gotten a handful of those already that have been really thoughtfully put together. So thank you for those. And Please send more questions as you have them. We'll be talking to her again on the 8th on Wednesday. Hey, Chris, have you uh, have you gotten into it yet? Have you dug in? How far in are you? I have. I'm about halfway through finishing. I'll be finishing it up this weekend. What do you think? It's awesome. It is, it's, isn't it? It's awesome. It's way better than I expected. I mean, not that I, had, I not that I had low expectations, but I, because it's Dina Castor and I have high expectations of her as a human – but it's even better than my already high expectations. And the book packaging just kind of didn't turn me on very much. I'm sorry, that sounds terrible. Sorry, Dina, I didn't mean it that way. What I meant was it didn't spark my interest the way it's sort of set up. And um, man, that introductory chapter, that first bit where she talks about Joe, Coach V Hill's discussion about attitude. Chris, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been coaching for a very long time. And you and I have been thinking very deeply about, about mental training topics for so long. And that first statement, that the most important thing that he talked about over and over and over with his athletes, which I know he did with me, but I didn't really get it, was to have a positive attitude. I mean, it's like a mic drop. Like For me, it was like one of those moments where I'm like, how in the world is something so fundamental, the way that we think, that we just let it go. So guys and girls, if you are interested in reading a book that hits all the topics that we love to talk about here from competitive distance running to mental training, to what actually happens in workouts themselves, this book is amazing. Highly, highly recommended. Pick it up, ask us some questions and get ready. I'm so excited to interview Dina for this one. This is going to be fun. Yeah, and for me, you know, I'd heard those summaries of the book and that, you know, it's about the power of positive thinking. And sometimes when I hear that, I kind of roll my eyes that it would be thinking that it might be overly simplistic, but it's not. It's incredibly nuanced in terms of how she applies that principle in a bunch of different examples. 
Plus, it has lots of good training wisdom from Coach Hill, some fun behind-the-scenes stuff on track action that, you know, that I followed 15, 20 years ago and that I think our listeners will get a kick out of. So it's really, really good. Definitely get it if you haven't already and do a crash course so that, so that you can listen in. This episode will be going up basically as our next episode. So, so you've got a little bit of a window to get it in and get caught up before we, before we publish the Dina one. All right. In terms of in other intro topics, we've got all things Olympic trials. This week, it was announced that officially the USATF Olympic Trials Organizing Committee has announced that they're moving the trials to Eugene. Back to Eugene, we had heard that Mount Sac, who was originally awarded the trials, had basically had them yanked from them because they had stadium issues. They were doing a stadium renovation to get to the seat capacity needed to host the trials. There were some permit issues with that stadium renovation and from what it sounds like behind the scenes, some other issues and concerns with how that organizing committee at Mount Sac was putting together this event. And so it got yanked from them and then awarded to Eugene. Allegedly, Sacramento and Austin were in the running when the second uh, selection was happening, but... I think we all knew, at least those of us close to USATF and this kind of decision-making, knew that it would probably go to Eugene, especially when you saw the rapid nature with which they're tearing down and trying to get moving forward on the Hayward rebuilding project. So I know there's conspiracy theorists, Steve, who are going to say this is bullshit, that Eugene is getting this again. This is all just Nike and Phil Knight pulling their puppet strings on USATF to get it in Eugene. And that might all be true. But as a fan, as a fan of this sport, who knows that Eugene hosts some of the best track meets in the country, I'm excited to go back. What do you we're, think? We're both going back. There's no doubt. <laughs> and hopefully we'll be, put, we'll be hosting an episode of this podcast or multiple episodes of this podcast. Maybe we can get a media, a media pass. And we can bring to our listeners what it's like to be in that experience. We've done that at Rogue a couple times, Chris, where we brought new Rogue people. To, we got we introduced people at Rogue who thought they might be fans to the sport, and now they just can't stop. They can't help themselves. They like watch all the Diamond League races they can. So we're ex- I'm excited. I'll tell you this though, and Eugene is such a fantastic place to host it. I, I don't. I just. I think that the main thing that I have an issue is with this. There is a it, even though Eugene puts on the very best trials, or and and I've been to other trials in other cities, and there's no way anybody can do it the way that Eugene does it. For all of Vinland, for all the things that want people want to give Vinlanana, who was the former um, Stanford coach and then the Oregon head coach, and then he became the head of the USATF, and then he became the head of the USATF organizing committee that had put on the trials and handled the trials. People like to give him a lot of grief, but he put on an absolute amazing three-ring circus for multiple years. And we know for a fact that Eugene, Oregon will put on an amazing experience. The one issue I have with that is just that the sprint – I feel the sprinters are always so challenged. We watched the NCAA championships this year, Chris, and we saw some events that we thought could have been – we saw events that absolutely blew us out of the water, right, in terms of sprint events – but they were doing it in weather conditions that is are completely and utterly suboptimal for them. 
So I do feel for that entire group, the throwers, the vaulters, the jumpers, and the sprinters who are at a bit of a disadvantage when they go into the, the weather conditions that are in the Pacific Northwest in June. It's usually much better in June. It can get really hot, which is it can be perfect in Eugene for this, for this, but it can also be a little bit nasty. So I get that there's some concerns about what it is for the athletes, but for the what it is for the fan, it is it is no competition. There is no one that can put on an event like they would. Austin, Texas, are you kidding me? We will it would be the worst scenario ever to put on an Olympic trials on the last weekend of June in Austin, Texas. Chris, come on. As much as we would love to be here and put on a party and have all that stuff, no way. Come on. No way. There's no way. And Sacramento and Sacramento is really tough because there's no fan support in Sacramento. There would and, and would there be a fan support in Austin and the NCAA regionals that has been here many times and the NCAA championships that have been here? There hasn't been a we haven't seen the will of the people to show up and really support track and field in venues outside of Eugene, Oregon. And our and I and so in the end, even though I have that caveat about the athlete experience. It really is, even the sprinters will tell you, the amount of love they get and the amount of recognition throughout that crowd base and the amount of noise and, 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 and love that they get, there's nothing like Eugene, Oregon. Yeah, I agree with all of that, Steve. And also, I'm excited to be able to see the new Hayward. Yeah. And I know that I mean, Phil Knight is putting allegedly $200 million into this, into this stadium and right now the thing has been torn down to essentially dirt so that they can rebuild it. But they will spare no expense to make this an amazing experience and to have a huge coming out party for the new stadium in advance of the 2021 World Championships, which will be in Eugene. And so I'm just excited to be a part of that. It's going to be the biggest track meets ever watched in Eugene. I do wonder what that means, Steve, for the ability to get a place to stay in Eugene, which is a little bit tight because it's short on hotel rooms. When we were there last time for the last trials, yeah, you know, we were at an Airbnb, but even those were hard to come by depending on when you were able to secure them. So, and Eugene has gotten, gotten, uh, gotten wise to the fact that certain weeks are, it's like us with ACL. They know when they know when people want to come and they can take advantage of us. So, yep. Yep. So that may be a challenge, but other than that, the fan experience is amazing. And the other nice part about that is that once you're there, if you do find a place to stay, generally you're walking distance from everything you want, from great restaurants to the stadium itself to be able to run out your door and hit miles and miles of great running trails where you're going to run into elite athletes that are doing their shakeout runs and their cool down runs and their training runs between sessions. It's just such a cool place to have an event. So I'm excited about it. Talking to the fans. So if you're one of those people who has no problem walking up to somebody, you'll get, you'll get an an ear, you'll get a mouthful from them. They'll tell you stuff. And if you're really, really brave, you can go to the wild duck after uh, on the evening of races and see a whole bunch of those distance runners, shit face drunk and acting like (laughs) fools. (laughs) Yep. I may not have been participating in some of those activities at certain junctures in my career. Like I, I, I plead the fifth. I will not incriminate myself. (laughs) (laughs) 
So if you have two trips to plan in 2020, your the first one should be to Atlanta the last weekend of February, and the second one should be to Eugene, Oregon for the summer track trials. We will be at both, no doubt. No doubt. All right. So speaking of the trials, there was a couple articles that were posted on Let's Run this week, and I'll link to them in the show notes where Let's Run, now that we're two years out from the Olympics, basically were, were the, they're two of their folks, Robert Johnson, who's one of the site founders, and Jonathan Galt, who's one of their writers, were on to try to predict for both the men and the women the distance events from 800 up to the marathon who would be on the Olympic team or who would be in the top three at the trials across those key events. And so I want to get your reactions on a couple of these on each side, the men's and the women's, starting with the men, Steve. I'm going to go to the 5K first. And so the way they broke this down for those that haven't seen the article is they broke it down between locks, you know, those that they both collectively agreed would be locks for the team, and then other picks, both from Rojo and Jonathan Galt. And so the, their lock for the 5K was Paul Chalimo. And then they, parenthetically, they had Edward Cesarek if he has his citizenship by that point. And Jonathan Galt picked Eric Jenkins and Grant Fisher as, as his other picks that might make the podium at the trials. And Rojo had Eric Jenkins and Sean McGordy. This one seems to me like pretty easy to pick your lock, given that Chalimo has you know recently won a time in league meet, has been on form, and really showing that he's only getting better at the 5K with his 5K Olympic medal already. And I tend to agree that Cesarek should be in that mix if he has U.S. citizenship by that point. But these other picks, in my opinion, are are like shots in the dark, and I I don't even know that I would agree with any of them. What do you think? Well, I, the fact that they both have Eric Jenkins just kind of shocks me. He hasn't done anything. I know he's the most talented American that we've seen. Chris, I watched Eric Jenkins his senior year before his fifth year. His senior year, he ran for a little school out of, in Boston, Northeastern, which I don't think anybody's heard of, North, something like that, right? And I watched him absolutely decimate a 3K field from like 1,200 meters out with a speed acceleration and drive that I've never seen from a collegiate athlete. I, I've been at many, many NCAA championships sitting in, in, in stands. This was indoors, Chris. He just obliterated people. But he's a one-trick pony who has to wait for a kick. And in college, he, did, he, he, could, he could stretch it out, but now he just has to wait for a kick. I just don't know how you can pick Eric Jenkins for this unless they're just going to say that everybody's going to sit around and like jerk each other off and then wait for the last bit to see who can pull it off. And in that case, yeah, maybe Jarek Jenkins is in that list. But if this is a real race where people basically run somewhere in the vicinity of 13 minutes, somewhere in the vicinity of 1310 to 1320, then Eric Jenkins is not going to be in that field. The other two guys, Grant Fisher and Sean McGordy, two Stanford alums, two really fast guys, same shit. 
So I didn't read this, Chris. I you you sprung this on on me, and it's it was so I didn't get to read their all of their arguments. But unless they're expecting this to come down and it's going to be one in thirteen thirty five or thirteen forty, then I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. I I do not agree with this. Um, I think that there are. I would guess that the people that we're going to be seeing in the five thousand and we get to the Olympic trials in twenty twenty, their names are not really on our radar yet. I don't yeah. think, I think, I think you've got, you've got, what about Drew Hunter? What if Drew Hunter's, I would put Drew Hunter here before I put them, move him up. What about, what about Matt Centrowitz? Matt Centro, Matthew Centrowitz hasn't moved up to the five yet. Wait till he, he's going to do it. He's going to do it, Chris. It's like, so uh, give me some other stuff. It, it, this, I guess this just basically says that the men's 5k in the U S sucks so bad that we're going to pick people who can only kick. Cause that's what they've got here. Like, I think this is, Terrible, terrible, terrible. Yes, Shalimo, Jesarek, check, check. Absolutely. Game over. These are the guys that are going to be there. These other douchebags? Come on. I'm not so sure. I don't understand this. Doesn't make sense. I'm with you. I mean, and I think if you're going to list anybody, you got to list Ryan Hill. He'll only be 30 at the time. He's been the most consistent athlete in the 5K for the U.S. outside of Chalimo in the last several years. So he would be in the mix for me if I was going to name somebody. And then beyond that, I mean, I think you got to look at Emmanuel Bohr from the U.S. Army team, Hassan Mead, and the fact that he, he'll probably be competing at the 10K and the 5K, and depending on what happens with the 10K, might have a chance at the 5K. Riley Masters is going to be in the mix, Riley hopefully Masters by that point. definitely going to be in the mix here, Chris. He, yeah. I, that's, so, just, that's a personalized name I would have on there. Right. So I'm just like, I mean, I have great respect for Let's Run and what they do, but I feel like... This was sort of a half-ass effort, to be honest, guys. It's like, if this is the best we can put forward as the as as Americans in the five k for the men, there's something wrong. Plus, you never know what's gonna who's gonna be coming out of undergrad in the next couple of years, who's gonna be able to compete. So, so now, anyway, so one, for me, there is, there is one scenario where I can see this, Chris. Okay, if one or either of these guys goes to the Bowerman Track Club, and Schumacher gets his hands on him. Well, whoever Schumacher gets his hands on, they're the people that are going to make the 5K team. That's all I'll say. All right. Whoever's <laughs> on, that's who's going to be. And it's not going to be right. old. It's not going to be old man, uh, old man, uh, what's his name from NAU who won the 10K this year? Uh, it, it's going to be somebody young. It's going to be somebody who's going to be in the play. And it's not, it, it might be somebody who comes out of Scott Simmons's crew. Depending on what he gets, who new pe- what new people he gets. So, yeah. I don't know. I wish there was a little more nuance here, and I wish they had gone a little deeper and talked about people who probably really should have been in there. But yeah. anyway. But the point is, it's going to be wide open in this world, I think, and and it's yet it's far from coming into focus as to who will be potentially the top three, because we don't even know that Tezarek will be able to line up as an American by that point. All right, so the other men's event I wanted to talk about is the marathon. So they have Galen Rupp as a lock, and their other picks they had consensus on were Shadrach Biwat, who was second, no, third in the Boston Marathon this year, and then Leonard Career, who I'm I'm guess they're so they're assuming Career moves up to the marathon by the 2020 trials, which to me feels like a stretch. And I don't know. I don't know why Leonard Career would abandon the 10K at this point, two years out from from 
the trials, but I could be wrong. So how do you how do you react to those picks? I mean, I don't know. We don't know who our marathoners are going to be. I mean, we know on a the thing is is I don't know. This, all this just highlights how how bad we suck. Like on the women's side, we are so good. Like we we look at it and say, okay, whoever makes our women's team will be in the hunt for a medal. On our men's team, we've got our one or two or three people who are in it, right? But the rest of them are like not. What will they do? They'll just be further back. And I don't know. I, I'm a little more up on Scott Fauble. I think. I think that they were going to see a Jared Ward situation in the Olympics, two 2020 Olympic trials in the marathon, where some American, probably coming out of North, out of NAZ elite, is finally gets their bis, gets their mojo on, gets a turning over, and Fobble's a guy who's actually been showing that he's can moving up. You know, he's he hasn't quite. He needs to get his his 5K and 10K down to be able to be competitive there. But I, I think I don't know. I, Again, grasping at straws. I'm not trying to beat these guys up. I'm not, but I, I, it's it seems tough, like they're grasping at straws. It's I, I like I like Fobble as well because of the NAZ Elite connection. I think, as we've talked about, Ben Rosario has good things going on there. I think Shadrach Biwat is potentially a good pick because of his experience in majors and his ability to sniff podiums there. I also yeah. like Tyler Pennell from Zap Fitness, who is yeah. continuing to come along and will have couple more years of development at the marathon and he seems to have turned a little bit of a corner after a couple years of struggling after the trials last time and so so anyway there's lots of names here but again this is an event that is going to be wide open consensus just like in the 5k we have one lock but the other spots i think are wide open and i think i agree with you in that it shows you that the men's distance Right now for the U.S. is a little bit shaky. A little bit shaky. We don't have much depth, and that's really concerning. So let's switch gears to the women's side. I'm going to pick the same two events, Steve, and get your reactions. On the women's 5K, they've got the lock pick being Shelby Houlihan, which I think we can agree on. And then Jonathan Gold has Chris Schweitzer and Emily Enfield on his list of other picks. Rojo has Krista Schweitzer, Shannon Robery, and Vanessa Frazier on his list of other picks. And Vanessa just joined the Bowman Track Club with Carissa as a collegian who's re- recently joined uh, that post-collegiate group there with Jerry Schumacher. What do you make of those choices? You know, sorry, I just jammed food in my mouth. So for all those uh, listeners out there who are wondering what the hell is going on, um, Sorry. Um, I thought you were going to go a little longer, but anyway, <laughs> I, I think they're okay. Um, I think Rachel Schneider is missing here, Chris. I think that the level of, I mean, anything can happen in this sport where people can get hurt and be out of it, but I don't like Emily Enfield as a pick here. I don't think Emily, Enf- I think Emily's going to move to the marathon before she moves down to the 5k. I think she's just a natural for it. So I don't really know why Jonathan's picking her here. Carissa Schweitzer is, it's like a no brainer. You know, anybody that Jerry's coaching on the women's side is pretty much going to make an Olymp- American an Olympic team, it seems like. <laughs> and so it's like kind of a, a no-brainer to go that direction. But I do think that um, to not have Rachel Schneider in here is a little disrespectful. I don't know if, they're, if they just haven't seen 
I just think she's getting better and better. She seems to be showing up at the right time. And I think even though she's had bad luck in the past and she's getting a little long in the tooth and being a little bit older from what we're talking about on, on these performances, I just think she should be in that mix. Um, and, you know, Shannon Robery is an interesting pick. I think that's kind of ballsy. I think what we'll see is an angry, ready to go, not angry, but a, a very motivated and ready to go Shannon Robery. But I was worried at 35 coming off a of pregnancy, whether that's going to be, whether that's going to work or not. Um, and so I guess I think that these are pretty decent picks um, compared to what the men's were. What do you think? I agree. And they did for, for fairness sake, mention Rachel Snyder, at least in the text. Oh, that's and they, good. And they, that. and they said that it would be a disgrace not to mention her in this article. So, so they did mention her down below. They just didn't have right. her in the in the main picks. And I agree with you that she's going to be somebody to be in the mix, especially with her range, her ability to not only have the speed to kick, but also to have the strength to kind of manage these these longer, quote-unquote, longer events as well. So I just remembered something, Chris. Let me cut in real quick. Yep. I just said Rachel Schneider would be getting long on the tooth. And I'm just remembering... Rachel Schneider, Shelby Houlihan, and Marielle Hall, when I was recruiting Marielle Hall to come to the University of Texas, USATF juniors in the 1,500 meters, the, all three of them were seniors that year. Those were the three girls that were coming into the finish with 100 meters to go. These are high school seniors. And there are three people who are probably going to make an Ameri- who, who, who are who have a chance to make an Olympic team. And Rachel seems to have found her way there. So I was a misguided to say that she was older because she's, she's the exact same age as both Marielle and Shelby. And it's interesting that that class, how amazing that class is, three Olymp- Olympians there at that race in, in Des Moines, Iowa, coming with 100 meters to go in a junior USATF junior race, are three we're talking about making Olympic teams. So super kind of interesting there. It's crazy to think that you could have a Bowerman sweep, sweep. here with yeah. and Schweitzer. And Frazier now being on the team. I mean, given their track record, especially in 2016, when basically every single female on the team on the team made the Olympics, you got to think that they're going to have a a damn good shot here in this event to repeat that. Of course, you know, we don't know yet how Schweitzer and Frazier are going to assimilate to the team, but Jerry has a good track record, so it'd be hard to bet against them. As we look at the marathon. I think we'll have more debate here. They had no locks, so no locks for the team. And their other <laughs> their other picks were Molly Huddle, Jordan Assay, and Amy Craig, with mentions about Lyndon and Flanagan as well, but questions about whether Shalane would actually show up at the trials and or retire before then. So what do you think? Okay. I, I, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> I don't know. This one is dangerous. <laughs> but, I mean, Jordan Hesse should be a lock to make the team. I agree. Right? I, I have no idea how you don't put, given her, her, her world major experience now, the kind of work she puts in, her age, her experience at the marathon now, and where she'll be in 2020 at, on the starting line in Atlanta, and then add to that who her coach is, the only way that she's not a lock is because something happens in that program that makes the, everything go to fall to pieces, right? But other than that, and even then, I guarantee you, Jordan has say 
that woman is freaking iron woman. She will find a way to overcome that. And as long as she's not associated with personally with any problems that might happen, she'll show up on, I guarantee you she'll be with Jerry's group and she'll kill it there. Like she's a fucking lock. End of story. (laughs) I don't know. To me, how in the world you don't lock Molly Huddle in that situation too? It's crazy. Now, I get the amount of talent that's there, but Shalane and Dez are definitely other picks, and they could be in there. But how you don't put Molly Huddle and Jordan Hesse there, and almost Amy Craig, like, why are they not locks? I guess because there could be other people that show up. Kellen Taylor, we know. Uh, Steph Rostein, the way she's running right now, we know. But there should be, like, so I guess, I don't know, maybe <laughs> – it's it is it is crazy that I see it says what a field. You've got whoever makes our women's marathon Olympic team is going. Some of them are one or two of them are going to medal, guaranteed, in my <laughs> opinion, guaranteed. So it's like how in the world how in the world do you pick it? So I get that there's a challenge, but they should have at least I think they should have been a little bit more ballsy, especially with Hase at 28 years old. Come on, like I mean, <laughs> give me a break. That's like. Whatever. I agree. I would have. I would have Jordan Hesse as a lock. I mean, at this but point, my, lock, I, my second my lock would be Lyndon before Huddle. Really? I'm just not sure. You know, it's like Molly still hasn't proven that she's committed to the marathon. Really? I mean, she she could she, she screw with Boston. I think. Yeah, she, I, think I know, but obviously that. she's gun shy now. And so I just don't know how that's going to play out. If I and you know she's going to be on the 10K starting line for this for this yeah. trials as well, and there's no sign that she's going to have anybody who could knock her off the podium of that. So you know why wouldn't you be on the Olympic team and the 10K? I mean, I guess because you believe you might have a better chance at a medal at the marathon. But I just I haven't seen her commitment yet to the marathon. And I think Boston experience may have made her even more gun shy. She's gone back to the track this summer to clearly kind of get that taste out of her mouth. So for me, Huddle is not a lock yet. Because I, I agree. She needs to double down on the marathon and get rid of the other stuff. Right. Right. Exactly. She needs to really commit to pure marathon training blocks, and she hasn't yet. Period. Yeah, I agree. So we'll see, but I'll it's going to be that. fascinating. And you got to be in Atlanta. We can do a whole episode on why Molly Huddle won't man up, woman up. Go for it. Anyway. Yeah, it's crazy. But regardless, this is going to be must watch either in Atlanta or on TV. The women's marathon trials is going to be absolutely stacked. So one other thing. We're cherry picking these guys. It's not probably not fair. It's a cool article. It's a great it's a great exercise to go through it right now to get people excited about it. I love that. So listeners, don't think that we're bagging on Let's Run or think that these two guys don't know what they're talking about. They definitely know what they're talking about. It's easy to sit in the catbird seat and take shots at them. So um, I think it's awesome that they did this, and I think it's good that uh, we talk about it. I just think it is probably a bit premature. And so from that argument, like why, but – Anyway, yeah, it's, it but it's fun. It gave us some fodder. It gave us some fodder, and it's fun, and you know, gave us an excuse to talk about track and field in the U.S. <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> after a slow week in terms of track meets, was much needed. Yeah. All right. So, back to our main topic. As we said at the top, we're going to be breaking down at the request of a couple different listeners 
by race and trying to give you a little bit of info on how you might tailor your training to each race distance and particularly spending some time on the shorter stuff, the 815 stuff, which we don't really talk about a lot since we're, we're often half marathon and marathon focused in our training content. Before we jump into the actual differences by race distance, we did want to set the foundation by talking about the similarities. And a lot of this stuff, Steve, we talked about in our very first episode in terms of training principles that apply universally. But I think in the context of this kind of discussion where we're talking about the nuances between distances and training for different distances, it's important to remind people that in spite of the fact that there are some distinctions, there is a base set of principles that are going to apply across all of these races that are really, really important. And Arthur Lydiard trained athletes from 800 up to marathon on largely the same training platform with varied race-specific training as he got closer to their events. And he ended up with athletes who had medals, Olympic medals in that full spectrum. So it's important to remind people that there's more, there's probably, I don't want to say more similarities and differences, but there are significant similarities in terms of how you prepare for all of these events in spite of the range of distances we're talking about. And the first similarity that we'll drill into is just the need for aerobic development. And as we said in, I believe it was episode seven, miles matter. So talk about that, Steve. Why for an 800 meter runner do miles matter? Because at the end of the day, every single event that we're going to be talking about has a preponderance of aerobic running for its success. Even the 800 meters, I can't remember the exact number, but if I remember correctly, it's 70% aerobic and 30% anaerobic. I mean, maybe it's 65, 35. I can't remember. I didn't. I didn't run any numbers on this specifically, but certainly when we get to the 1500, we're already at in that vicinity of 80, 85, if not 90% aerobic in order before we get to anaerobic. And so at the end of the day, given what the race requires, you've got to be an aerobic monster in order to be able to compete at these race distances. And if the 800 is even, oh, is even equal at 50, 50 aerobic and anaerobic, then you would need to be working a whole lot of aerobic work. But we know that it's even more than that. It's it's a significant margin that every one of these events is all about aerobic development. And how do you develop your aerobic system? As we've talked about many, many times, getting in the long runs, getting in the mileage. Aerobic development is crucial and critical, both the sort of the, the massaging of the aerobic system through easy running and also the stressing of the aerobic system through running that happens at marathon paces and faster than that. And both areas where you stay aerobic is crucial and critical for the building blocks that are necessary for these races, period. If you've ever watched 800 meter runners and 400 meters train, I've seen a lot of that. I coached them myself. I've watched them through many, many different systems And all of the 800-meter programs, the differential between the eight and the four is the amount of focus upon the aerobic system, even with sprint-sprint coaches. There was not a more sprint-focused coach than Beverly Kearney at the University of Texas when I coached there at UT. And even she recognized that there was a need for aerobic development in her 800-meter runners 
even if they were on the four by four team. Chris, we had 800 meter runners when I was coaching there at UT, who I coached, who were on the four by four team in the finals of the NCAA championships. And guess what they did? 800, they did tempo runs at their half marathon goal pace. <laughs> so <laughs> it's important for everything, even for someone who's going to anchor a four by four in a, in a, in a mile relay, anchor a four by four, who's an 800 meter runner. So, and when we, when we talk about aerobic development, we talk about the length of your long runs and the volume you're putting in miles per week. What's the longest long run you've seen an 800 meter runner do? Well, Peter Schnell did 18 mile, 20 mile long runs on every Sunday, <laughs> yep. 20 mile long yep. runs every Sunday on Hills. Like, come on, there's, there, there are no collegiate 800 meter runners that are doing that right now. And Peter Schnell, no, no, no. I don't even think there's, any, there's not many professional 800 meter runners that are doing that if they are. And Peter Schnell's times now, if you, if you correlate in 1960, 1964, when Peter Schnell won his Olympic gold medals, not only did he win the Olympic gold medal. Not only did he run times that had never been run, those times are still competitive these days. And you can factor in the fact that he had absolutely terrible equipment and was running on a cinder track. When you take all those things into consideration, come on, 20 mile hilly long runs. And Peter Schnell was a big boy. I mean, he's like 6'2". He's like weighed probably 160 pounds. That's a big boy. That's no joke, right? That's hard to run 20 miles over hill and dale in New Zealand's hills. So come on. I, mean, I think that, that all the technology that we've created, that, that has been formed and all the science that's been shown still doesn't change the fact that the aerobic system is crucial and critical for the highest levels of every race distance we're going to be talking about today. And I think I've talked about it before, but I also note that Nick Willis, Olympic, double Olympic medalist in the 1500, does regular 18-mile long runs in his training block as well. So... Again, volume is important whether you're running an 800, a 1500, a 5K, up to the marathon. And now that doesn't mean that if you're sitting here listening and thinking, man, I'm training for a 5K and I'm only doing five, six miles at a time, doesn't mean you have to go and do 18 or 20. That's not what we're suggesting. What we're suggesting is that you just simply recognize the fact that if you're able to build that long run distance from wherever your starting point from five, six miles, maybe to eight to 10 miles, you're going to see a benefit from that. You're going to see an advantage that will translate to your ability to deliver speed in your race. As I've talked about many times before, we're talking about changing your physiology from the inside out, or uh, the analogy I use is we're building the size of your engine, your ability to process oxygen globally, and the bigger your aerobic engine the faster you can go regardless of the distance. Okay, so that's sort of similarity number one, Steve. The second one on my list is the need to do running economy work year-round. So oftentimes when people think about the marathon, this is kind of going the other end of the spectrum, when they think about the marathon, they don't think necessarily that they have to work on the faster end of the spectrum on running economy, running efficiency. and But we're here to say that regardless of what the distance you're training for, even if you're training for a marathon, that you need to be doing some faster work, whether it be strides or some VO2 max work throughout the year to keep that those 
those fast twitch muscles ready to fire to improve your efficiency and your ability to to deliver on marathon pace or half marathon pace while burning less energy as you shift to those longer distances. So talk about that, Steve. Yeah, you know, I this is something that I've come, I kind of got away from um, recently, but I've come back to in a, in a much stronger way. And I think some of it has just been watching this speed development cycle we've done with our podcast training group, Chris, and our team road group here in Austin. And we did that because we really thought it was important to work on their economy and to get them in a position where they could work at faster paces with greater ease. And that's kind of the, the concept here. It's, it's a little bit it's a little bit counterintuitive because many people just don't see how doing mile pace work or strides or 5K pace work or 3K pace work has any direct correlation. And, and that's a funny thing because the difference between correlation and causation is different. But it's, it's so many people want to focus on, when we talk all the time, what does the race require? And when we say race, what does the race require? People then will, will extrapolate and move over there and say, oh, you should just be doing the paces that you need to do for your specific race distance. And yes, late in the cycle, that's where you want to be. But at the end of the day, we're still runners, Chris. And the running mechanics is so crucial. Your form, the way your body moves through space, and speed work really helps that. Number two, we're absolutely certain, science has shown us over and over again, that economy is a crucial piece to this. And the only way you get more economical, which means using less energy to go further and longer, is by working this energy system or working faster paced work, 15 5k pace and faster and so it's counterintuitive but it, it it is so crucial chris and i i'm even bigger believer in this now it's something that i think instead of building these kinds of pro this kind of protocol in an energy system way as i've done in the past with my training groups now i'm beginning to start to build this economy work in as sort of what you might call a, a fundamental piece of the ongoing process, maybe even taking strides out from my athletes and impl- instead implementing 5K pace, 3K pace, one mile pace in ways that sort of work on this from both the opening up of the, of the, of the way that the body's stride, right, stride rate works, the way that the, the, the actual mechanics and form works, but then also doing that at the same time, because strides don't do that, Chris. When you're doing strides, there's almost no energy system benefit from it. But if you run 5K pace or 3K pace or mile pace, and you do it for long enough, let's say 200 meters or 300 meters or 400 meters, not only do you get all those same form, X, you know, push off the ground and neuromuscular things, you also get an energy system benefit. So anyway, I'm becoming bigger and bigger and bigger believer that economy is crucial to the piece in Amer- for even marathoners. And it's certainly critical and critical for a 10K runner and a 5K runner and a 1,500-meter runner and an 800-meter runner who have got to be able to shift energy systems, kick off of fast paces, and have their mechanics be sound and have their body be able to make that transition quickly, easily, so they can blow their competition away. So across the board, Chris – this is becoming 
almost, I can't say more important than Miles Matter or aerobic development, but it's moving more and more up on my list of crucial and critical pieces of the puzzle to the point where it's, it's starting, it's definitely the clear number two in my mind at this point. Yeah, and we've talked about it. I know we talked about it with Peter Ray. Greg McMillan was another person who referenced this. You know, there used to be this idea that as you enter a periodized training block, regardless of your distance, as you go into this base phase where you're just simply putting in the miles to develop that aerobic foundation, which is important. But as we've learned from coaches like that who have the real-world experience, as we've learned here in Austin at, at Rogue, is that during that base building phase, you have to have some running economy work built into it so you keep the lights on, so to speak, so that when you transition into the more intense or the race-specific pace work, you're, you're basically you're ready for it. Otherwise, you have this abrupt transition that can lead to injury that potentially doesn't allow you to get the most out of that work when you start it. And so it's really critical, and that's something we've seen over the last really four or five years that we've really started working that into our base phases here in Austin. So to me, those are the biggest two points kind of on this similarity uh, section where aerobic development is critical, year-round economy are critical, regardless of your race distance. All right, I got one more. There are others. There are others I was going to mention, but to me, those are at the top of the list. So I got one, and then this is not a different one. This is just I realized that I had an addition on the aerobic development piece, okay? And this is coming from a conversation I had with an 800-meter, 1,500-meter runner who competed at the world level, Chris Gole. Um, he trained with our group um, in Austin. He's a He was from – Wales and he ran for team GB for the great Britain team. And he made a couple of vests and he was a 400 meter runner, 800 meter runner. Um, right. Even as he came to, to me and I started working with him, Chris, and I'll tell you that the other thing that I would just say, and it's sort of a corollary or, 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 a, or a, a step below that, um, idea of vault of what happens with aerobic development is that Everybody should be trained. If you want to just pick one workout or you want to say what is the most important thing any runner can do from 800 meters all the way up to the marathon, it's half marathon goal pace running. It's lactate threshold. That work is done by every single – is done and focused on with a consistent – in a very consistent way at all of these distances. It is the most important piece. Yeah. And I would say if there's a magic workout or one workout that matters so much, I would. I, it's hard for me to say that. You know I like making new workouts up every week. But that's just crucial and critical to consider that, that half everybody does half marathon pace work. Everybody does threshold, that anaerobic, that anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold or whatever you want to call it. It is so critical and crucial that it should always be in everybody's program from top to bottom, whether they're an 800-meter runner or a, mar- or a marathoner, and it should be something that it pl- that plays in very, very significantly in all of that, even up to and going into the final last preparation workouts for those athletes before they race their command performance. Completely agree with that. The other things I wanted to reference were things that we mentioned, of course, in episode number one. You know, there, there's going to be you know, some concept of periodization that goes into all of these race distances. And then, of course, 
the stress and recovery cycle is important in all of these race distances. But those are sort of underpinnings and kind of additional bullet points. Whereas the two things we mentioned, plus what you added, Steve, were kind of the key points. The final thing I want to talk about before we jump into the differences by race, because I, I don't know that this is necessarily considered, particularly for some of the shorter stuff, is this idea that what we talk about, purpose, often in our mental training, is important regardless of the distance you're trying to peak at. You know, it, it makes sense a lot in the context of the marathon because that's such a beast. But if you're trying to peak at the 5K and get a really nice, solid 5K PR or half marathon, or maybe you're training like some of us have this summer for a, a mile time trial and trying to improve your fastest mile, I think having some sense of why you're doing it and the purpose for that, regardless of difference, distance, is critical. I think sometimes for the shorter stuff, like if somebody's training for a 5K, they don't necessarily do that work to think about mentally why they're doing it. And then when the going gets tough and we know how how much pain a 5K can be and we've compared it to that of a marathon in, in, in different ways, if you don't have that purpose locked in, then you're not going to be able to withstand the pressure of the intensity of any of these distances. So that's something else not to neglect from a mental standpoint, regardless of what you're training for. Oh, totally, Chris. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's, I can tell you as a coach of 800 meter runners and coach who coached 400 meter runners, um, no matter what the duration of the race is, everything comes down to that final moment where you have to have a reason that's bigger than you and more important than you or so you that it overwhelms every other thing in your entire world for you to take the steps to put yourself in harm's way at the level that you have to, to have a command performance at the level we talk about. And so, yeah, you got to be willing to go into the firing squad and get yourself blown up. And if you, and the only way that people stand on a firing squad to get shot at without it, without crying and losing their shit is because they have a reason why they're standing there. And so it's so crucial and critical to be on that starting line and running through those late portions of the race with a real purpose inside. You nailed it on the head. It doesn't matter what your race distance is. That is one of the pieces of the puzzle that is so important. And Chris, I've talked to many times about having great starting line experiences. The biggest piece of having a great starting line experience, even bigger than knowing that you did the work, is knowing that you have a reason to be on that line. Because there's every reason in the world for you to dodge that bullet when it comes time. And so I think that you're right. Having a statement of purpose is one of the most important pieces of the puzzle here and crucial and critical to getting the kinds of results you want or even just getting to the starting line. Absolutely. All right. So now as we segue into the differences by race distance, we're going to be talking a little bit about training differences and nuances across these, how you might think about prep races differently across each of these race distances and then potentially some notes on mental prep for each beyond the purpose we're going to start with the the shortest and work up to the longest steve and you're the expert on 800 and 1500 meters because i've never coached athletes at that distance so we'll be leaning heavily on you here and your experience at the university of texas and coaching elite athletes after that here at rogue with rogue ac so Let's and and by the way, as backdrop for all of this, 
as we always say, the question becomes, what does the race require? So we're going to kind of be drilling into what does each of these races require in terms of preparation. So starting with 815, Steve, what does that look like from a training standpoint? We, we know the aerobic foundation is there, but what does it look like beyond that? It's a lot of workouts that, um, that look like I'm like, that look like the coach is putting the athlete through the most unimaginable torture that you can possibly, that, that it is. I, I will never forget my experience at the university of Texas working with 800 meter and 1500 meter runners and, and, and 400 meter runners to, to add to that where people were just laying around the track as if I had taken a gun and shot them. I mean, it was shrapnel out on the course and that's part and parcel of what is actually essential because what happens in the 800 meters and the 1500 meters and the 800 especially, but both, both these races is that you have to be able to work efficiently with a lactate dump in your system. And what happens with lactate dumps um, in the 15 and the eight uh, is that they don't come on slowly. They drop on you like a Hiroshima bomb and, and like, like, like it, it just hits you so hard and you know, it's coming. So you're freaked out about it. And then when it hits you, you can't do anything about it. It's almost like those dreams that I've had. I don't know if you've had them, Chris, where you've got a hundred, like always you wake, you're in the middle of your dream. You've got a hundred meters to go and people are going by you. Grandma's going by you with a cane. There's some people in wheelchairs going by you. There might even be somebody who doesn't have any legs that's waddling by you in your dream and you can't outkick them. I don't know if you've had, I've had that dream so many times. And that's what, and that's what it feels like in an 800 meter race with 100 meters to go. And everybody's having that same experience. And because that's what the race requires, you have to train that way. You have to actually put people in unbelievable amounts of pain. My experience at the university, I, I had done a lot of 800 meter work in my um, experience as an athlete and my experience in coaching at a high school level. And then, and then watching it collegiately when I was at the university of Texas as an athlete, but I had never been able to see the kind of work that 400 meter, 800 meter runners do until I went to Bev Kearney, until I started coaching with Bev Kearney at the university of Texas. And I've referenced her a few times, I mean, she's the grand dam of sprinting in the, in the U S and even the world for many, many years from the late eighties through the nineties, even into the early two aughts, she was, she just won title after title and she knew how to get her athletes ready. And Chris, we would do four, they would do workouts where the girls had another whole set to do. They're vomiting in trash cans. They're laying on the ground as if somebody shot them. They're in the bathroom hiding. I would have to knock on the door to the women's restroom and say, next rep, two minutes, two minutes, and yelling at them to get them out onto the track. I mean, we don't see that in our world. And yet that's what is so essential to this kind of work. Now, the 800-meter runner, the 400-meter runners that moved up to the eight, it was just a complete shit show for them because they had no idea that they would have to go into that hard space and then do volume on top of it. But our milers know that. And that's the cool thing about the mile. The mile is a really weird race, but the way you train for a mile is probably the hardest training that there is in any event because so, they have that 
equal mix of doing what a marathon, what, doing what a, a 10k runner, 5k runner needs to do, but also doing the work that a fifth, that a, that a, that a 400 meter, 800 meter has to do runner has to do because they also hit that last hundred meters. Most of them, if they're running in high level races, the only way they can do well is to be in that position where they can actually kick off that last hundred. Whereas 800 meter runners, if you watch them, that doesn't look like a kick. It looks like they're just hanging on by a thread, right? But the 1500 meter runners, they're running at a very, very similar level and they have to lift and kick off of it. So one of the biggest differences, just to reiterate, is that the kind of anaerobic lactate dump work that these athletes have to do is just is just next level. Can I give one more example, Chris, since I'm on a roll right <laughs> well, now? Well, yeah, and I'd also like, as you discuss that, to just lay out like a like a sample training block in, in high level. I mean, how many weeks is somebody like? Let's say somebody's training for you know a summer championship meet. How many weeks are they prepping if they're 800, 1500 meters? And how is that broken down? And what are some of the key workouts? All right. Well, that's a fucking giant question there. Okay, you might have to hit me. You might have to hit me up with a reminder on yeah, each one sure. of those points, but. The key thing here right off the bat is they got to be doing speed development. What we call what, – what, what we, our listeners have no idea what speed development is when you consider what, a, what an 800-meter, 1500-meter runner does for, for speed development. Um, my experience when I was coaching at the end of my career at UT, I had a couple of really, really, really good – I had a lot of good 800-meter runners in my time there, but I had a couple of really, really good 800-meter runners who were built from scratch, Chris. And by that, I mean that they were not – they were not the best in high school. They were not recruited across the country. They were kids that were Texas kids who were good and they had some basic skills, but they might not have had the right the right work. And what we would do with them is lots and lots of form work and then lots and lots of what I call 150s, which are 150-meter workouts where they would build and build and build, and they would work on that anaerobic system, get that power play that would be into position and so they had to work on getting it on first on getting the neuro neuro recruitment and the recruitment of all those muscles to run really really fast like we're talking like they would have the ability to run a 54 second 400 meter as girls as and and but they would also have to be able to run a tempo run that would be six minute per mile that's a really wide range that's a hard thing to do so they needed to be able to kick they need to be able to buffer lactic acid and they would need to be able to be in a mental space that they could handle all those things at the same time and find a way to get to the finish, as you talked about with from the perspective of having a, a purpose. Um, so that's one of the things that that they would need to do. And I, I, I could go into specific workouts, but it's, it's really hard because there's such a range of workouts that you have to do. But the key thing is it's fundamental. They do their long runs, Chris. They do their tempo runs. But the kind of intervals that they do, we did very little VO2 work. I was a little bit different. I would do things a little bit differently with my athletes. I would have them do some VO2 work because I knew that that energy system was crucial. But they would just do so many workouts where they were wrecked and ruined by the end of it. And I don't think our listeners have any real conception of what high-level 800-meter, 1500-meter work entails. It's, it's just brutal, brutal, brutal. So one, so what's so what's an example? 150 meter repeats. 
So we, we would do them three different ways. Okay. We did these three different ways. The first one we would do is we would time them for hundred, 150 meters. And I would say, run as fast as you possibly can. That was a shit show every time, Chris, because they would just rig up and they wouldn't be able to do it, but it would give me times. And I would say, okay, like a fast 150 time for a girl at that point in time would be, let's say it would be, um, uh, 20 seconds, maybe not for the fastest 800 meter runner, but let's say it's 20 seconds. And by the time I would end that cycle, Chris, I would be hoping that they would be able to hit maybe under 18, but we're talking like 18.0, 17.9, 17.89. At that point, I'm paying attention to even, even that small a decimal point on what they're doing because it's telling me how quickly they're moving. So they would, they would do that. Then the next time they would do a 100, 150s, they would do what I would call a sprint, float, sprint. And that means that they would go out for the first 50, and I'd put a cone at each of the 50 meters. They would sprint, just like I said, all out for the first one, right? And then I would say float. And then that float meant just what I've told people in this podcast before. They let the foot off the gas, and they just let themselves kind of naturally slow down a little bit. And then they would hit the next, at 100 meters, they would hit the next cone, which was 50 meters later, and sprint again. And so what I'm doing is forcing them to do what their race is going to require, which is changing gears, right? Shifting, shifting, shifting. I'm also doing something else by asking them to float. I'm telling them, how fast can you run in a relaxed mat fashion? And as we would do that, we would start these 150 drills in October, Chris, planning on having a command performance in May or June. And we would do them every week, sometimes twice a week. And they would be spiked up. They would always be doing these because it was so critical and crucial. And then the final way that I would do these 150s is what I called a build, where they would just get faster and faster and faster, each of those 50 meters, trying again to work on their ability to lift with fatigue in their system and roll. So what's the recovery on that? They would walk for 100 meters after that 150. They would pitter-pat jog for a little bit for another 100 meters, and then for 50 meters before they got back on the line again, Chris, they would try to get their shit together. They would try to get themselves ready for the next rep. We would do maybe four of these, um, and we would do them, again, usually once a week in the cross-country season, so October, November, December. And then when we got back in January, we would start doing them um, at twice a week, and we would modulate whether we would do the, the, the hard one or we would do sprint, float, sprint, or we would do build. Sometimes I would do float, sprint, float, and I would just keep changing and modulating all the different scenarios that I could to try to get them to a place where they would have dealt with every kind of booty lock and every kind of mind fuck and every kind of like, like blood in the mouth experience they could possibly have, hoping that when I was standing with 150 to go in their race, I could say just the right word at just the right time that they would stop thinking and start acting based on the fact that they did that workout over and over and over again. Because unlike marathoners, your 800-meter, 1,500-meter runners, they are in such distress that they are animals. It's flight or fight. It is just immediate circumstance where they're just dealing with, the, with, the, with what's going on in that moment. You know, So that's one workout for 800-meter runners. Here's another one. This one I used all the time. This is a Bev Kearney special. It's amazing. It's two sets, and for the real ballers, these are the girls who are going to be 
in the finals at the NCAA championships in the 800 meters, which means there's only eight women in the entire country that is going to be on that line. We would do three sets of this workout. It's three times 200 meters in 30 seconds with 30 seconds recovery. So they stand there for 30 seconds. Three, two sets of it or three sets of it. Chris, this was like, this was, this was so hard to make them go through. Like I would have to really get, cause I mean, now I'm, I'm just putting these girls and these women in harm's way. Like I am lining them up to the firing squad and they know it cause they see it. And I didn't want to do that. I, I did not. I did, I hated this workout for the first three years that I coached at UT and by the end of my cycle, I was even having my my fifteen hundred meter runners do this workout because it so tested your will and so tested your statement of purpose. Because the body, you're because they're going to fail at it. Like this is a, this is the one of those workouts where there is zero chance that you can do it. So for women, sub two minutes is the is the is the the, the gold standard for an eight hundred meter, and we're doing three times. 200 meters in 30 seconds. And Chris, these girls sometimes, especially Bev's 400 meter runners, Chris, they would go out in 27 seconds for the first 200 meters. Like I would try everything in my body to like, don't go out so fast, but they can't help themselves. They just, that's what they're made to do. That's what they're good at. So they would do it. And I would just look at them and say, you only get 30 seconds rest. And they would line back up on the line and they would do another 200 meter in 30 seconds. Chris, that's, that's four-minute mile pace. Like, it's really fast. And then they would get only 30 seconds, and I would be dragging them. Chris, at this point, I'm yelling. I'm like, get on the line. Get on the line. Stop thinking. Don't think. Move, move, move. And they would get on the line. I would be five, four, three, two, roll. And they would just get off the line. And, Chris, by the time we got to that second set for those, you know, those, those athletes that were going to be at the conference level, and by the time we got to the third set for those athletes that were at our – that we're at our um, NCAA level, which basically in the U.S. would put you nearly at world-class level. These girls could not feel anything from their neck down. Like there was no sensory experience of their appendages. Like they are, they, they are getting off the line for one reason and one reason alone because they believe that they believe and trust in the system that they're in and that they know that the thing that they want is so important that they will do anything to do it. Like that work is just mind boggling. I, I miss working with that group of people so much because of the kind of work that they had to do. And the, and the warriors that were there, they were just straight up bull face warriors. Anyway. So there's two different examples of kinds of workouts that are the complete utter end of the spec, other end of the spectrum for what, um, for what a marathoner would do. Um, yeah. And then there's mile stuff too. I mean, the milers do different kinds of pain. You know, they do that 10 by, you know, at, at Leo Manzano and Jason Vigilani. Jason Vigilani was a coach at UT when I got there to coach there. And I know him really well. And their staple workout for the mile and one that Leo did all the way through all of his career was 10 times a quarter at his mile pace or faster with 60 seconds recovery. They call it 400s on the two, which means 400 meters run at your race pace for the mile with only a minute recovery. Or if you run 58 seconds, well, then you can get, you can get another um, two seconds recovery as it will help you. Right. <laughs> but 
that worked out every time. And, and, and Leo, he was so good that his last two years when Jason was coaching him, Leo would do 12 reps and nobody else would. And the whole track would just be watching him and in awe because he could do that load and manage that workout all the way through. So it's just a different beast altogether. That kind of work that happens is um, reaching into some kind of primal place that's just different and, and, and another level. Um, so you're doing these intense yeah. speed workouts with obviously mixing in the tempo and the long run stuff as well to round out the systems. And I assume you also have a lot of form work with hurdle drills and things like that as well yes. to really become as efficient as possible. The other thing, Chris, that was so important for this group, and I now come to believe that it's also really crucial and critical all the way up to the marathon, is the weight room. What's happening in the weight room and what kind of work is going on in the weight room and the kind of ballistic power work that is necessary to be good and be responsive for the last 100, 150, 200 meters of a world-class 800 meter and a world-class 1500 meter is pushing weight that actually makes the football players look like that matches what football players and what um, other athletes like that do. They might not be the same load, but the way that they do that work, I'll never forget our, our 400 meter runners and 800 meter runners at UT Sometimes the football players at the University of Texas, and this is the years that UT was winning NCAA, was winning the national championship or in the hunt, they would be in awe of what those girls could do in the weight room. So there's another whole component of real focus on power and power lifting and what we call Olympic lifting in that event. And Chris, you know, we've been doing this with, the, um, with our, our friends over at CrossFit. It's kind of, I think that kind of work is also crucial and critical for marathoners as well because of the kind of load that happens late in marathons and the inability for those muscles to fire and recruit, you know, that heavy legged feeling that people have over the last three to four miles um, is kind of simulated and benefited from doing that kind of lifting. But that's another whole topic of conversation. We could go on for hours as well. So, so last question, Steve, on this range of races, because we've got a, and we'll have to do it on other parts of this episode, but we've got to talk about the other stuff as well. But I want to talk about races. Obviously, with the 800 meter, with the mile, you can race more often than you can a marathon in a given period in that you can have more than one race, perhaps once you start trying to peak. So how does that work? You know, how many can you do and how much space might you be able to put between each? And, you know, how long can you hold a peak as a as a racer at these distances? That's a great one, Chris. And it's so, that's a great question. And, um, I'll tell you that there are as many different viewpoints as that of that as there are coaches, but I think they fall into two basic categories. There's, um, the coaches who are more coming at these events from the sprint end. So these athletes would be, um, like Ajay Wilson. Um, it would be Clayton Murphy, who can sometimes move up to the 1500 meter. Um, and, and then there's the, which are for sort of 800, maybe 1500 meter runners. Cause Ajay can run a really mean 15 guaranteed. She make the Olympic team. She might even win the Olympic gold medal at the, at the 1500 meters as well as she would at the eight. 
Um, so there's the sprint side of that question about how many races they run and how they periodize that training and how you can peak. But there's also the side of that where you would look at those coaches who are more aerobic development focused and more focused along the lines of, 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 of getting that aerobic work in. And, and those coaches and those athletes are mo- far more periodized and far more nuanced in where they place their specific races and how they place them. So athletes like that would be Matthew Centrowitz is definitely an athlete who, in my opinion, could be world-class in the 5K as well as in the 1500 meter, but not in the eight. Uh, maybe another version of that would be Shelby Houlihan, who we know has the 5K and the 1500 meter work. And even Jenny Simpson, who has always been an aerobic development monster and their co- the way her coach works, Mark Wetmore, it's always focused on that piece where they're really thinking about how they race and they race a lot less. So let's talk about those two things. The sprint-based groups, they race all the time, Chris. They race 200s, 400s. They race uh, miles. I've seen coaches throw their athletes in a two-mile race if they thought it might do something for them. And they race They race a lot of frequency. They race above and below their race distances. And they sometimes run multiple races in a meet, a meet where they might run a 200 and a 400, or they might run a 400 and 800. Many of them will run the 800 and then a four by four. And so there's a lot less idea about what they're doing from a periodization standpoint in racing. It's a lot more that the periodization that they're doing or the way they line things up is far more focused and nuanced from their training perspective. And that the training elements there are the things that they're, that the coaches are playing with rather than the races. And those sprint-based athletes a lot of times race a lot more. Now, Clayton Murphy's not that way. We've noticed that. Even in college, he was much more – his coach trained him as a sprint sort of based guy. And even though he did longer stuff, he he really was more nuanced in that approach. So the distance coaches from the flip side, I mean, they're trying to get their athletes to run as few races as possible while still getting the sort of need the, – the need for that – lactate dump that happens in races and the need for them to get to have their inner warrior or their animal come out that will make them race the coaches know they need that so they got to throw them in races but they're trying to protect them a lot more than a sprint-based coach will do um and so yeah there's those two real sides of that about how they play that now how do they choose races well those distance coaches they really have their athletes run only one event above and below what they're going to race. And I wonder about that because I wonder if that's the most sane and and, and sound approach and if there should not be a little bit more sense of play in that regard. But all the coaches of those level athletes know the mentality of their athletes and know how much harm they can actually, how how much they can put those athletes in harm's way because athletes have to be resilient enough that if they get kicked in the teeth and have a poor performance, how will they come back from it? The sprint-based athletes are very good at doing that. They've had to do it all their career, and they're much better at dealing with failure because they see that the end result will be where it is. Now, one similarity, Chris, here that's really crucial about both of these groups is that mental preparation has got to be a slow, incremental, gradual build to our peak. So in that way, all of these coaches, all of these athletes and the coaches are looking at it in the same way. They're building their cycle back from the command performance races that they're going to have to have. They're taking into consideration 
the fact that they're going to have to run rounds for those races. So a guy like Clayton Murphy, if he knew that he, all he was going to do was run one, one final of the 800, would train very differently than he trains when he has to run three rounds of the 800. And he has to run three rounds of the 800 at both his U.S. Olympic trials and then three rounds of the 800 at his Olympic Games. Or he's a real cocky mofo and he decides to do both events, stupid as we found out, at his Olympic trials. And that requires a completely level, different level of how that coach will train that athlete because of that. And, and the sprint side, they don't have to do that so much because they're mostly running their athletes at both the 400 and the 800 and or the 400 and a 4 by 4 at nearly every event. And so they're not being so concerned about the nuance of how that works for them. They're just trying to get their psychological game played up teed up and ready to go for that great command performance race. So those are two different ways that I see it lining up. There's a lot more nuance in that. And I hope our listeners and any listeners of ours who are already coaching athletes at the 800 and the 400 and the 1500 at this really elite level, um, just know that I've, I've, I've skipped over a whole bunch of really, really crucial and important stuff, but I'm just trying to give our more distance oriented listeners sort of an, a, a, a view of from the inside of what that kind of world looks like and how different. And as you said, Chris, how in some ways it's actually similar. Yeah. On the similarity side, I think about with the marathon cycle, you're doing the long runs, you're doing the tempo work that you described, and you're also doing work to help you learn how to suffer. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, those 800 to 1500 runners are doing that speed specific work to basically teach themselves how to suffer in the context of their event. Whereas with our marathon blocks, we're trying to teach ourselves how to suffer in the context of our event. The work looks different in terms of the workouts, very different, but that adaptation to suffering is an important component of both. Absolutely. I mean, Chris, we could go on for hours about this topic. I could talk about what the long runs look like for the various 800 meter athletes that I coached. Cause I would, I would do them different and I periodize them different. It, it would be a lot, a lot of fun to kind of dive deep, but I think that you're right. We did, we gave them a lot of insights and, and some of the differences that happen. Um, but also a lot of the ways that our marathon listeners can sympathize and think about what some of these athletes like Ajay Wilson and what, what, what Clayton Murphy are doing in their events. Yeah. And we're out of time. So we're going to have to leave them with a cliffhanger, which is that we're going to get to this same discussion for races longer than 800 and 1500 meters, 5k, 10k, half and full on our next episode of this, what has now become a series on sort of of what does the race require? And we'll pick that up after our Dina interview, which will be the next episode to launch. So we'll wrap it here. Y'all of course, as a reminder, get us your Dina questions by Tuesday the 7th if you're listening to this on Sunday or Monday. And we will get those questions to Dina. As always, thanks for listening. You can check us out at our website, roguerunning.com, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.